NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is January 6, 2023, and today we are talking with Amanda Parrish Morgan. I will tell you more about her in a minute. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the NWP in Berkeley, California, and I am so pleased to welcome you, Amanda, to NWP Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. That's awesome. So Amanda is the author of a very small book. I'm holding it up, but you can't see it, audience, um, called Stroller. It's part of a series put out by The Atlantic called Object Lessons. And I am enthralled with this book and excited to be able to talk to Amanda about it today and share it with our audience. So Amanda, I want to start by saying I was lucky enough to discover your writing via a listserv that named you, that was celebrating the publication of your book and named you as a writing project teacher. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind if we could just start with your writing project story. What, what, where, when, what were you teaching? How did you get involved in the writing project? Sure, I'd love to start there. So I taught high school English from uh, 2008 to 2014. And in the summer of 2010, I did the the Connecticut Writing Project, which is the Connecticut branch of NWP at Fairfield University. Um, And it was just a really wonderful summer. I was just at a place in my life where I was so consumed by the teaching part of my teaching job that um, you know, I was kind of worried, even though I hadn't been teaching that long, that I was going to get burned out. But at the same time, I really, really loved teaching. Um, and so for me, that summer at the writing project was just the perfect way to stay, you know, sort of like professionally engaged. I met a lot of other wonderful educators, some of whom are still close friends through that class, but then also just to feel like, okay, there is a, a place for this other love of mine, which has had always been creative writing, not just for teaching my students and in my classroom, but as a part of my life too. Um, so that was the summer of 2009. I, after that summer, started to do a little bit of freelance writing whenever I could, you know, squeeze in some writing time. And um, then in 2014, I had my oldest daughter and stopped teaching full-time. So at that point, I sort of made a goal that I wanted to supplement the part-time teaching I was doing with freelance writing and just sort of see how that worked out. And it felt a little bit like a a scary jump, but I, one of the part-time teaching things I was doing at that point was teaching a summer program through the Connecticut writing project. So I had stayed involved with the writing project here in Fairfield those summers. And then that led to eventually teaching at Fairfield university where the project is housed here. Um, and I actually just signed up my daughter for the CWP camp for, for the <laughs> summer, which felt very full circle. Um, so it's sort of been a part of my life in all different phases of life and in all different sort of professional and personal ways over the past 15 years, I guess. Uh, I think that's a story that will resonate with a lot of people who've been in the writing project for different phases of their life. And um, it's a lovely introduction to you. So thanks for sharing it with us. I wonder if we could unpack a little bit of those um, phases that you talked about for our audience, because I know you know that um, that our audience is primarily writing project um, people, and many of those are um, teachers who are very invested in being writing teachers, but also in learning about that through being writers themselves. And I think that sort of interest or itch to be like, what would it be like to focus more on my own writing is always part of the community when we're together. So um, if you could say a little bit about those those first years when you were still teaching full-time and um, decided to commit to doing some more writing, how did you make that work? What was your writing teaching life like in that moment? Sure. So one thing I feel like I should say first is that one of the instructors this summer I did CWP um, was a teacher and poet named Del Shortliff, who's since retired from teaching, but he was just such a wonderful, he ended up being a colleague eventually too, when I changed school. So um, he just was a wonderful instructor. And I I loved the way he talked about writing. And then when partway through the class, I learned, I think from another student that he had published some poetry, it was sort of like a light bulb moment of like, 
oh, you know, I knew he had kids and he was at an apartment chair and teaching the summer class and had, you know, a very busy personal and professional life, but he was still finding time to publish. I don't write poetry myself. So it was almost the perfect example that I felt no sense of like competitiveness or, Ooh, if I don't do this, I won't be as good as he is. It just seemed like this amazing thing to learn about this man who I admired from a totally different context. So that almost felt like the first little glimpse of permission to pursue writing. Um, and then that same summer, our last project we worked on was um, meant to be sort of like a op-ed type of piece of writing that was, we could choose how we wanted to publish it, whether it was literally going to be a letter or an op-ed to a local paper. And that felt also like a, an important aspect of permission because I had been grappling a little bit with the way I felt often as a classroom teacher that I couldn't speak out about teaching because I didn't want to say something that was going to get me in hot water or so that would seem unprofessional. Um, I was a really young new teacher too. So I felt a little bit self-conscious about that as well. Um, but then we, we met with one of our uh, state representatives, Jim Himes came to visit us in class and we talked to him about concerns with policy we had and sort of from that conversation, all of the uh, students in the class wrote something about education policy. And it felt like, okay, there is a way to engage with teaching in writing in a public way that isn't unprofessional and that can even be maybe controversial without being a scandal. Um, so that felt really important to me too. And at around the same time, I became friends with another writer named Belle Boggs, who was also a high school teacher. And she felt very strongly that it's an important um, right that teachers exercise to write about teaching. Um, and that that whole set of conversations was really freeing because as a new teacher with, you know, so much of my, so many of my concerns were about education and education policy and what it means to be a teacher. And to feel like I couldn't write about those things felt like, well, then what am I going to write about? You know, this is my whole world right now. Um, so having those conversations really opened up a way for me to see how writing about teaching could become not only not bad, but a good thing too. Um, so in those first couple of years after doing CWP, I would really make a practice of writing early in the morning. Um, I think I, at that time, left for work around 6.30. So I would get up maybe around 4 or 4.30 and write. I would try to write for at least an hour um, by the time I you know, got my computer set up and had my coffee and actually sat down to get a solid hour of writing done. Um, and, you know, of course, it didn't always happen. But the first couple of things I wrote were about teaching. I wrote an essay for a literary magazine called N Plus One about uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brody, the Muriel Spark novel, which is, if um, listeners haven't read it, about this sort of terrible teacher in many ways. She's like an egomaniac and sort of fosters a cult around her and um, does all sorts of things that are deeply troubling. But at the same time, she has this sort of like a lot of charismatic leaders ability to really inspire her students. Um, and I was just fascinated by how the book got at that sort of dangerous charisma that teaching can encourage and re even require sometimes. Um, and the way that at the same time, teaching can be very lonely, or I found it could be my first few years before I had really gotten, you know, fully involved in the school community. So that first essay I wrote was about loneliness and teaching and how you can be around people all day and even people you really like and really care about, but you know maybe they're all students or it's all a quick conversation in the hallway that's in public and you don't really um, maybe have a sense of belonging. So I wrote that and then I wrote a piece about coaching high school cross country, which I did for many years, um, that was sort of framed as a letter to a young, a young runner. So those first two pieces were sort of transitional, both in that I was writing about teaching, but also getting those first few bylines then opened up some possibilities later for me, just in a professional sense, once I wanted to do more full-time freelance writing. And could you also maybe tell our readers a little bit about that transition, our readers, our listeners, <laughs> about that transition from um, the classroom to full-time freelancing or whatever. Sure, yeah. So uh, truly it happened because I had a baby um, and I I think I would have been scared to do it if there wasn't this sort of like socially acceptable reason to step back from a job that I really liked. I, you know, I, I had also just gotten married, so I had health insurance through my husband. A lot of logistical things made it possible. Um, 
and the cost of childcare, I really started to think, okay, well, if I can teach in the summer and do some freelancing, and at the time I was still coaching. So, you know, it, not exactly a wash, but there was a way to make it financially feasible that had, you know, had to do with my individual circumstance. I know it might not be possible for everyone. Um, but I had, I tried a couple of different ways of making that work. And, um, for a while I was doing some content writing for a local company and that was great because it was regular steady pay that then let me do some more creative writing during other hours of the day. And then as I started to get a few more bylines, some of them unpaid, but just to have, you know, more of a portfolio, then I started to pitch myself to teach writing classes for adults and sort of pulling in different pieces at different times. Um, and I, I would say that I even tried all different types of writing. Like I, I wrote a few service journalism pieces, which are really not my thing. I find that a hard kind of voice to take on, but I wrote a piece for the Washington Post pretty early on about tips to get back to running after pregnancy. And even though it was a topic, I knew a lot about that style of writing was just tough for me. Um, and then I wrote some personal essays and I, um, you know, I had tried everything that felt like, okay, I can have that last paragraph of my pitch letter. I can mention I was a teacher, I was a coach, you know, I'm a new parent. I know a lot about literature because I taught high school English. So anything I could sort of make it my mm. uh, topic, you know, I, I tried to just pull that in there. Um, and I know there's a lot of debate and it's a complex issue of people should write for free or for exposure. I felt like I was in a position where I could do that sometimes. And I, I do think it helped me. Some of the, actually that first essay I mentioned that was an N plus one, I didn't get paid for, but that probably opened up a lot of other doors for me. You know, the editor I worked with there then moved on and I stayed in touch with her. Um, and at that time, because I was still teaching full time, it was it felt like, OK, well, I might take a continuing ed class and send, spend many hours a week working to write something for that. So this isn't really so different than trying to further my career by sinking in time, even if it doesn't immediately result in income. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever really had the opportunity to to um, interview somebody who does freelance writing about what it's like. So we could probably have another whole show about that, but I, it's not what I'm going to do today because <laughs> then you wrote, this is your first published book. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's, as I said, part of the Atlantic Object Lesson series. And um, I picked it up because I knew it was written by a writing project teacher. That's how I came to it. But I adore this book. I think there's so much, it's, there's so much here. So I want to spend some time with you talking about the experience of writing this book and about the book itself. So let's start by just, um, this, this book was my entrance into this book series, which is an interesting thing. So could you say a little bit about what Object Lessons is and maybe how you found out about it? I'd love to. I think the series for me is embodies so much of the quirks I have as a reader. It's almost <laughs> like I can't believe this series exists because it's so perfect. Um, all of the books are fairly short, um, which is something that even in reading fiction, I love novellas or sometimes those long, those long short stories that are like, is this a not a novella or is this a short story or really long form journalism. Um, so I was really drawn to this idea of what the constraint of space, the, their books are all supposed to be under 30,000 words, which is, you know, about half as long as like a typical commercial work of nonfiction. Um, but that kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that each book is about one specific object and that each book in the series you know, the style varies and the object varies, but they are all using one object to reveal something about our culture and our society. The one I first heard about is called High Heel by an author named Summer Brennan. And I heard her on, I think it was on the takeaway on WNYC, our local NPR station. And um, she was just talking about how she wrote the book. And I thought, wow, I personally don't wear high heels. I'm a big wimp about comfort in my feet. So I was thinking, this isn't even something I care about as a itself, you know, high heels. I, I mean, I don't oppose them. I don't wear them. I just, I've never really thought about them. Um, but the way she was talking about the research she did, and then the way she described how the book was put together with a mix of sort of memoiristic or even poetic chapters, and then, you know, some more truly historical research. I just thought that that was such an interesting 
concept. And I had always loved reading essays that do that. And I hadn't seen that as much in books. Although I think in the past few years, I have started to see that a bit more in even outside of the object lesson series. Um, but I'm just a reader who who really identifies easily with an, a strong narrative voice. So if I'm going to be reading something that has a fair amount of research in it, if there's some sort of narrative thread or character as, you know, the author as a character that I can latch onto, it just makes me so much more likely to stay engaged and really absorb the the more dense information that might be in there. Um, so anyway, I love this concept and I, I loved hearing her talk about high heel. And for a couple of years, I just sort of had it in mind that, oh yeah, there's that object lesson series. And I would sometimes see one out and about or maybe see something else published by an author and then in the byline mention an object lesson series. Um, and then I started to really think about how what the series does is a lot of what I loved about teaching. Um, you know, first in a really literal way that when I was teaching, especially my older high school English students, we would often spend a lot of time talking about how objects work, especially in fiction or in poetry. You know, what does this object evoke and, and why is this object central to what we're reading? And how does this connect with other uses of this object um, in other things that we've read? I found that to be a really interesting way to talk about symbolism and metaphor with students and just an interesting way to break into a discussion of a, a dense book. I taught The Scarlet Letter for a long time, which was sort of intimidating to students, but a book I loved teaching. Um, and there's so many ways that you could use objects in that book to kind of make it a little bit more accessible to students. So I started to think about how the concept of the series just really appealed to me as a writer as well. I had you know, previously just thought about it as a reader. Um, and then somehow I came across that they had a call for submissions or for pitches for new books in the series. This was probably in 2019. And I wrote a pitch to write about running strollers and sent it off and didn't hear anything for months and sort of forgot about it. And then the pandemic started. And then I was like, well, I'm sure the fact I haven't heard probably means it's a no. But because the pandemic had started and I knew there had been a lot of chaos everywhere with you know people working remotely, right. turnover, I thought, well, it doesn't hurt to just confirm that it's a no, and then I can maybe pitch this as an essay to somewhere or something like that, um, since I've already done some of the research. And I found out that they had had complete staff turnover in that time, and my pitch had just kind of been like sitting in a drawer, and it, it really quickly got that moved out of the drawer, and I found out that they wanted to publish a book if it, I would expand it a bit to be not just running strollers, but strollers in general, and I was happy to do that. Um, so that was... I feel like time, my timing of years is terrible since <laughs> COVID began, but um, nobody knows what year it is since COVID. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it must have been in the summer. I signed the contract in the spring of 2021. And I actually turned in the first draft of the book by the end of that summer because I remember frantically writing on the last day my kids were in summer camp, like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I got 10 minutes. Um, but and then the span from, you know, fall of 2021 through the winter of 2022 was revisions and copy editing. And then just with the production lag times that have been going on in all sorts of industries, it wasn't until October that the book was actually ready. It had to get pushed back a bit because of supply chain. You know, I think lots of people have had stuff with that. But um, so the drafting was fairly quick, I think, in part because I had submitted a pretty detailed proposal. Mm -hmm. But first about running strollers and then modified that to just be about strollers. Um, and I loved from that's something I had never done before. I'd never written a book at, at all, but I'd never worked from such a detailed outline. And I found that to be a really efficient way for me to organize a bigger project. Um, and it was sort of felt like uh, almost like being a student again, where I could sit down and I had the, like a rubric for myself, you know, like here's my concrete task for this stretch of days and I'm just going to flip through it. Um, so I really, I'm actually getting ready to teach a class about book proposal writing because I thought that was almost harder than writing the book. And I, the skill that for me, at least of organizing the ideas into the order that made most sense from a narrative structure was the hardest part of the thinking and planning process. And um, that I found doing that in a way that was effective made the actual drafting much, much easier. 
That's fantastic. We probably want to have you back sometime to talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. We're going to have you on a regular series, Amanda. <laughs> Come talk to us about writing book proposals. Come talk to us about... <laughs> well, I would love to do that. <laughs> uh, so, but I want to turn our attention to the book. Um, I want to spend a few minutes talking about it. I don't want to talk so much that people think they know everything in it because I think everyone should read this little book. I love it. Um, but... Also, I think there's been this thread throughout that I've wanted to say, oh, that's because you're a runner. Uh, so you've been exactly named yourself as a runner. But one thing that's very clear from reading this book is that you are a runner. So I wasn't, um, having read the book, I wasn't surprised to find out that you started with the idea of the running stroller. Yeah. But, but um, you are a runner and you are a mom, but still there are many objects in your life. What made you think, the stroller is the right topic for an object lesson book? Yeah, that's such a good question. I guess my answer sort of is in two parts that hopefully make sense as they come together at the end. The first thing is I knew I wanted to write about an object that had to do with parenting young children, partly just because that my kids are now six and eight, but when this all started, they were still using the stroller quite a bit um, and I, they weren't in school full time. So my entire work schedule and even just you know, the logistics of day to day were really entrenched in taking care of young kids, which I, I loved that phase. And I actually sometimes feel very nostalgic when I see a stroller go by my office window. <laughs> um, so I wasn't really coming at it from a frustrated perspective, but I just, you know, it was so much how I, a part of how I thought about the world. So I thought like what object having to do with children or parents or mothers, I thought about a breast pump, but then I felt like there was so much politics already around breastfeeding and formula feeding. And I just, didn't want to write about that. So um, any, although that would be an interesting object for someone else to write about, but um, <laughs> then I thought, well, strollers are so visible and we live in a fairly walkable suburban neighborhood um, where most families walk to school and walk to preschool and the train station. So I was just seeing them everywhere. And I didn't have a lot of friends who had kids before I had kids. So I had never really heard anyone talking about this type of stroller or that type of stroller. And then all of a sudden I noticed that people were, and that there was like inventions and devices to go with the stroller that I never would have even conceived of. Like this one woman, it's a, I see why she had them. It almost looked like boxing gloves that hooked onto the stroller's handle. They were mittens for, we live in Connecticut where it's chilly in the winter to like, to keep your hands warm. But I just was thinking like, wow, someone invented a boxing glove, the, the stroller handle. <laughs> Some of these strollers are so expensive. And yeah. I started to sort of deduce that like the brand, this brand or that brand, like really meant something beyond just that it was expensive in the same way that like a Tesla versus a Cadillac, like means something to people who care about cars. Um, and so strollers seemed like a good candidate because they were visible. And also because even though I'm a woman and my book is mostly through my perspective as a woman, obviously men use strollers too, unlike with my breast pump idea. Um, and then also I felt like, even though I live in this affluent suburb and I'm seeing all these, you know, fancy strollers, many people in many cultures use strollers. And I did try to write a bit about outside of the US, but my book was mostly focused on US parenting. So um, it felt like I could cast a bit wider net with strollers than if I wrote about like, Montessori approved toys or something that would sort of narrow the demographic. Um, and then in terms of the, like when I started with the running stroller idea, it was because I had noticed when I was running with the stroller, you know, wh whatever pace I would typically run, I'd run about a minute per mile slower with the stroller. And I didn't mind, like I knew, you know, it didn't bother me. But then when I would run in a race, I was so pleasantly surprised that even though I wasn't running nearly as much as I used to, I was on my college cross country and track team. So at one point I, you know, I ran a ton. Um, and I'd be like, wow, even though I'm hardly running, I can run almost as fast as back in those old days. And I think it's because I'm pushing this stroller everywhere I go and it's making me stronger. And it's almost like running with a weighted vest or something. Um, yeah. And so then I started to think, well, that's such a perfect metaphor for parenting is that <laughs> on a literal way, it slowed me down and I, I would never go very far because the kids would get bored or I would get sick of pushing the thing or, you know, <laughs> weather. Um, whereas in the old days when I was just left to my own, my own schedule, I would 
say, okay, well, I have this on my running plan today. I'm going to go out and whatever it takes, get that done. So having to be flexible. And I just started to think about in many ways outside of, you know, running is so literal and you can measure your finish times in a very concrete way. But I thought like, I think this has happened in other ways too, that I felt like my writing had gotten better because I wasn't setting an alarm. If I was going to set an alarm for four in the morning, when I had a baby who didn't sleep through the night, I was not going to be going on Twitter. You know, I was going to actually be writing. (laughs) And it just felt like that same type of harder, but shorter resulting in something that I was really proud of carried over, not just with, you know, road races, which even though I love running, it's completely just a hobby for me. I started to notice sort of like a professional transfer too with, um, And even with teaching, I wasn't teaching full-time, as I said, but I used to just take forever to grade papers. And sometimes I still do now, but um, I found I could just like sit down and get, because I knew I might not have another chance to do it. I would just sit down and get through the papers quickly. Um, And, you know, I think it's up for debate how much, if any, was lost in my feedback or whatever, but I had just sort of seen this trend across all these aspects of my life that parenthood had made me more efficient and more focused, if also maybe more exhausted. Right. Um, I don't know if my questions are in the wrong order now, but I'm just going to go with the next question I was going to ask you, and we're going to come back around to um, some of the content, but I'm sure readers will be interested, um, or at least I'm really interested in your process. Um, The book is and we're going to talk more about that, but the book is this, as you've already described, a kind of beautiful mix of your personal experience and a sort of historical view, and then these interesting frames, uh, you know, feminist, uh, cultural, uh, uh, the fiscal and capitalist views around all of the relationships between us and parenting and strollers as an object involved in that. Um, but like, how did you do that? Like when I read the book, it feels like seamlessly braided together in this beautiful way. Um, how much of what you wrote about, did you already know how much was research and how did you, um, How did you figure out how to put those things together in the beautiful way that you did? Thank you. That's so that's, I hadn't really thought about that before until you asked it, but I realized that even as a student myself, I always wanted to write these papers that like weirdly had first person in them. And, you know, I went to high school in the nineties when that was, you know, totally out. Um, And I did have a out again, which I want to talk about at the end, but yeah. (laughs) Um. But I had this, actually, he had himself done the writing project too, interestingly, but this wonderful ninth grade English teacher who I then had again as a junior, and he really let us do some more experimental things in our writing um, and showed us writing that was, you know, outside of the super traditional, you know, same 10 short stories everyone reads in high school. And um, I remember he brought some Joan Didion essays for us to read in ninth grade. And, you know, some people were like, what is this lady? Why is she talking about herself, I thought this essay was going to be about California and I, but I just loved it. And, um, you know, I even like in a way that was sometimes I'm sure baffling to my other teachers and even in college, you know, I went to the university of Chicago, which was also very not first person writing focused, you know, it was very old school in terms of the curriculum with this big, you know, core requirement. Um, but I, I always was like trying to find ways to incorporate narrative and even memoir into academic writing with various degrees of success <laughs> in different classes. Um, but th- sometimes I find that that style is a little bit hard to pitch or hard to describe. And I I know there are times when I've had editors say one or the other, either like, no, we are looking for a straightforward memoir or no, we are looking for a fully researched reported piece. Um, and I know a lot of readers feel that way too. I've heard, no one has said this, to my face about my book, but I've heard people <laughs> say this about many other books too, you know? Um, oh, I just wish it had only been her story or I wish we didn't have to hear all about her life and just learned about snakes or whatever. Um, but I I just felt like that's kind of the way I think that was the way I thought as a teacher was that my students' experiences and the text could live together. And 
when I taught AP Lang for a while and whenever we wrote synthesis essays, I would really try to make sure that some of the texts they were drawing from were either sometimes even using fiction or poetry, but some sort of more um, narrative and literary writing to go with the, you know, more sort of traditional nonfiction texts that were such a big push when I was, when I was teaching that class. Um, so I think partly just how I, I think about what I read and how I think about the research I do is that maybe it's self-absorbed, but I just can't not filter it through my own experience and vice versa. Um, but then in terms of more literally the actual way I did the research, I find that it's two almost like separate parts of my brain that can generate a draft and can do research. So I would try to have a system where in the morning I would draft until I just felt like I could feel myself becoming less articulate and less clear. And then I would take a break to whatever, eat lunch or do something else. And then in the afternoon, I would do research. Um, and, you know, sometimes the schedule had to change based on childcare or other needs, but I would try to give myself permission to stop drafting when I really felt like it was grinding to a halt. Mm -hmm. um, and then not to feel guilty that I put it aside for the day and went to do something else. So um, I actually wrote it in a kind of blended way too. It's not like I did all of the research first and then referred to my notes. I, even though I did take a lot of notes, I actually didn't refer to them that much because I was often writing so quickly after I had done that particular chunk of research that, you know, I would have to reference the direct quotation I wanted to use, but the overall ideas would still be pretty fresh when I was drafting. And then it was more in the revision that I was referring back to all those notes to confirm, you know, statistics or whatever it was that I'd written down. That's, that's lovely. Like this is the sort of thing I, I like these tips or tricks that you don't just get to talk to every author about what they do. Um, and I think it really worked. I want to say that I also am a reader and a writer who likes this blend of, you know, where do I interact with something? And then how do I, how does that interaction spur me to have these questions or thoughts or connections to a whole bunch of other people and a whole history and a whole, you know, number of frames around things. So I, maybe that's why I love this book so much, but I think everybody should love it. I'm just going to keep saying that. Um, there are particular, um, quirks or interesting details about this book that I love that I just, because I have you here can I, and I am the host, I get to ask you questions. Like, <laughs> I love that this book opens and closes with these like hand drawn diagrams or whatever you want to call them. Um, <laughs> Uh, one, the opening one is, um, is a taxonomy of strollers and the, and the closing one is stroller as metaphor. Uh, how did, do all object lessons have such a thing or did you, is that your, um, I'm so glad you asked about this. Um, so the first thing is that all object lessons don't, but all object lessons do have some sort of like multimodal. I'm not teaching freshman comp right now, so we have to say multimodal all the time. Um, <laughs> they have, um, you know, images of some kind. Some of the authors of the object lessons books are artists or um, work in a more visual field. So it's actually their own or some of the images are their own. Um, in addition to those two hand-drawn parts, they're also photographs in mind too but um part of the books the series I mean mission is that, that there's meant to be like aesthetically what was the phrase that was on the description something like visually appealing or you know that there's an, a design element to the series too all the books have black covers and a kind of like minimal modern picture of the object on the front in a, this black matte cover um so when I turned in the first draft of the manuscript the hand-drawn parts were not there and neither was there's a middle chapter that's this kind of very weird imagined dialogue between some people and a literary critic who lived in England a long time ago um where there I, I love that chapter by the <laughs> that was so fun to write it, I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe how strange it was it's so all of the things the people the characters which were all real people are 
attributed as saying they did actually write somewhere or say in an interview, but then they're kind of pulled from all different places. And some of, um, some of the people in the dialogue are women and some are men and some are playwrights and some are artists and writers, but they're all responding to this famous one line that this literary critic, Cyril Connolly said something along the lines of there's no more somber enemy of great art than the pram in the hall. So all of these people are pushing back and saying, no, having children or a pram in the hall did not ruin my artistic output. It, maybe it changed it or it accelerated it or it slowed it, but it didn't, that what a, you know, what a false thing to say. So then I decided to put myself in the conversation too. So it is a very odd part, but that wasn't in the first draft either. And my editor, Chris Faberg said, you know, some nice things about what was in the book. And he said, but is there anywhere you can like take some more risks or do something a little bit weirder? And I was thinking, wow, I've never had an editor say that before. <laughs> like, yes, I would love to do something weird. So I wrote back right away and said, actually, I have two ideas. I had sort of drawn a version of those taxonomies and the metaphor thing in my own notes to keep track of the ideas. Um, and then I just made them like a little bit more deliberate and um, tried to write more neatly. <laughs> Although if you look at it, it's not all that neat. Um, and I even said, I could put this, you know, make this on the computer or I could keep it hand-drawn. Um, he said, let's keep it hand-drawn, which I really liked. And then that middle section, I said, okay, this might be too weird. I don't know if this is what you had in mind, but I've read so much about people responding to this line about the pram in the hall. And I feel like I have a whole conversation going on of people refuting this guy's opinion and maybe I could do something with that. And he, Chris said, great, <laughs> love it. And I was so excited, but also kind of scared because it did seem kind of like a risk. Um, but people have mostly, at least that they've told me, liked those sort of quirks of the book. Um, and they were really fun to do. And it felt like once I put those in, it felt like, oh, now the book, I don't know if this will make sense, but it felt like now the book isn't trying to be perfect. It's trying to be a part of a conversation. And it, it yeah. felt like a way to move it out, like give it permission to be weird in a good way. Yeah. I, you know what, I wouldn't have described it as weird or even thought of that. But when, now that you say it, I totally see how that those end pieces and that piece in the middle do open it to be part of a conversation, not a definitive text on a, on the stroller for yeah and yeah. that's something I struggled with a bit even especially in the parts writing about baby carrying and stroller culture abroad I had said this to the editors too like I'm not an anthropologist or a design historian and there's only the book is only 30,000 words so I do, I want to make sure I'm not making a gross generalization about like everyone in Africa does this or like <laughs> you know all people who do baby wearing believe this so how do I talk about general trends that might be different across the globe or different, not in the U S in a way that is acknowledging that I'm writing this from my own limited perspective. And so it was important to me to feel like not that, not to seem that I didn't have authority about some things, but also to make lots of space in the book for the fact that this is an examination of an object from one person's lens and that there's, you know, there could be a book, object lessons, baby carrying. And there could be, um, I'm sure an entire book about, there's a, one chapter that's about cultural differences in parenting expectations. And I mostly wrote about the United States and Europe because that's where I've lived. And there could be, uh, probably are many books about South American culture of parenting, you know, and I didn't even touch that, but I wanted to, as much as possible, make it clear that I knew there were huge areas I wasn't touching on in the book. Um, I could talk about this book with you all day. I can tell that that's true, but I am going to take this moment where you talked about, um, you know, permission to write or, or like how to, how to put something out in the world that doesn't overreach your expertise or, you know, that you feel comfortable stepping into a conversation that already exists. Because I think I want to take that moment to transition to one other question I have for you about as a as a teacher. Um, but I think that's a great thing to highlight as well. I think one thing that can really 
hold young people back from writing, especially writing for teachers, is their lack of expertise and wondering what are they going to add to the conversation. And I think that we make it harder and worse when we say you can't write in first person, you can't write about your own experience, right? Um, So I thought it was lovely to hear from you, obviously successful published author that that anybody can have these worries and that they can, um, worries and fears. But, um, but um, also, I love this, I love this book that it, that, which we've already talked about, but that you have woven your own experience with your research and created something that looks, an informational text that looks at an object from many um, facets. I think in school, we, in the last, in this decade, we have decided to kind of um, put different kinds of writing in different boxes. So I think we, that kids get a lot of instruction that says informational text has to be source-based and it has to be on research and it can't be written in first person and it can't include your own experience. So now you've written a book that actually breaks all of those rules. Um, what would you say to teachers or to young people themselves about this, about what an informational text is? Maybe that's my question. I don't know. Well, I have sort of two unrelated in the sense that they're about very different age groups. I'm right now teaching college freshmen, but I also have a third grade daughter and I went to go visit her class shortly after the book came out. Actually, the whole third grade came and it was we live in a neighborhood where everyone walks to school. So I know a lot of the kids and it was just a really wonderful book event and they had great questions. But one of the students raised his hand and said something like almost exactly what you just said. Is this an informational text or is this memoir? They already knew it was nonfiction and it cracked me up, but I also was like, huh. So I did my best to explain it was both and, you know, in a way appropriate for third graders explain why. And then at the end of me talking, my daughter's third grade teacher said something like, so should we try to incorporate some, they were writing on informational text. Should we try to incorporate some memoir and art if you want to in your own informational text? And they were all like, yeah. And then, you know, my daughter came home the next day and like had incorporated, she was writing about swimming. You know, she'd done all this research about swimming pools and stuff. <laughs> I think elementary school projects are so sweet. Anyway, um, <laughs> but then she like started with the scene that was like rumble. I heard the thunder in the distance, like about a time when she was swimming and she had to get out of the pool because there's a thunderstorm. And it was, I just loved that, you know, I know nothing about teaching elementary school children and I am in awe of the patience and organization that my kids' teachers have. And But it meant so much to me that even just me saying something that something yeah. could be both, right on the spot, the teacher pivoted and said, let's try that. Um, And, you know, that's not like a curriculum decision or a district decision. That was just that teacher responding to what kids seemed interested in. And they had already done a unit on memoir writing. So she'd already done that instruction and just like, let's try that. Um, And then the other thing I would say on the other end of like the educational spectrum, my college freshmen at the end of the semester write these I call them synthesis papers, probably coming from AP Lang terminology. Um, It's a big research project, but I make a point of showing them many examples of informational text or research-based writing that uses first person. Um, And some of the students hate writing in first person and they don't want to. I have a lot of, we have a big nursing school at the university where I teach. So especially a lot of students who are science majors are sort of, they're used to writing that type of science Um, academic paper and they feel more comfortable writing like that. And to me, a a big mission of mine at that age is to think about what role is writing going to play in your life going forward. So if those students want to write something that's more like a, you know, with an abstract and more of a scientific paper, I will support them doing that. But I'll also have students, this one student wrote about, um, about puppy mills and wrote actually about his dog. And it was like, I mean, on the one hand, that sounds a little silly, but the best part of the paper was actually the part about his dog. You know, the the research about puppy mills isn't new. You know, that wasn't so much adding anything to what we've most reasonable people already think about puppy mills, but that made the paper better. Um, And so I guess I just would say that I, I hope the kind of final thing I hope can tie this together is I know all of us have been at least the educators I've spoken with in recent weeks have been talking about this 
you know, AI potential in writing and the chat GPT. My husband teaches AP computer programming, so he's obsessed with this thing. Um, We're a little obsessed with it here too. So I understand. (laughs) Well, and just today I went on a run with a friend and he was asking about it as well. And the thing I keep coming back to is I I don't understand the programming, you know, reasons for all this, but the thing it can't do as well that I've seen is it can't bring together like many different kinds of work. Not that it can't incorporate citations or it can't access academic journals because it can. And that's, I think, alarming, but that <laughs> it has a very like uncanny valley-esque voice. The times I've tried yeah. to give it some prompts and then try to catch it not seeming human. Um and on the one hand, that doesn't solve the problem of assessment. Like, how do you know if a student is relying on this? I don't know the answer to that. But it it does, it's missing voice, really. Like, which isn't surprising because it's not a human. So I think as AI can do more and more of that, no first person allowed, like just synthesizing some sources and digesting, putting it into digestible paragraphs, that's a, that's reality now. Like, and it's it's not far off. It's not hypothetical. It's here and it's free. And my husband says he's overheard his high school students in the hallway saying, "I'm never writing a paper again." Like, it's it's a real thing. Right. And to pretend like, oh no, I'm gonna write the assignment that can't be AI'd. That's probably not realistic. But I've been trying to think like, how can I design assignments that students wouldn't want to outsource right. to something else? I know that's not. A hundred percent doable, um, but I keep thinking it, like a common prompt that I, I know it's a national writing project prompt too is to think about why do we write. But I've been thinking about why don't we write? Like what are what are the reasons that stop us from writing? Or I don't think even students who do plagiarize, I don't think they set out wanting to plagiarize, for, you know, or wanting to cheat. That's an act of like desperation or fear or panic. And so what kind of writing would you never outsource? A love letter, like a eulogy, comedy, you know? So how, or something maybe that you really, really care about, whether that's puppy mills or strollers or whatever, like, is there a way by, instead of like trying to narrow, narrow down an assignment until it can't be done by AI, widening out writing assignments so that they require students to invest themselves and their voice in a way that would make an AI program do so much worse of a job and and not even really do what the assignment's asking. I haven't figured out how to do that, but I do feel like that's really, really important, um, you know, imminently to figure out how to engage students on the voice level and thinking about what can only you say, not only like what can only you say and not an essay you bought online or not a tutor who's helping you, but really actually telling you what to write because those <laughs> problems already existed. But how can you, what is something that no machine could replicate for you? And how do we get students to believe that the flaws and idiosyncrasies in their voices are part of what makes writing good and important and um so that's kind of my question. I can't answer for myself, but I've been thinking about how maybe this in-between genre thing, at least for right now, is not something that is quite as outsourceable um, just because of the the voice-driven nat- nature of some memoir writing. And I, obviously I know someone could plagiarize a memoir too, but but maybe there is a way to kind of think of this as a as a way to engage students who might otherwise not see why they have to go through the act of writing if they already know they're going to be a physicist or something like that. I mean, I can't believe that I've been able to spend this whole amazing, pleasant hour with you and we are near the end. So I thought we should end with a very quick advice. Uh, Mine is for listeners to go get your book. The book is Object Lessons series, Stroller by Amanda Parrish Morgan. And it's a delight and you should all read it. Um, And I'm going to save the last word for you, Amanda, if you have any advice or something else you'd like to say to close us out. The only thing, I don't even know if it counts as advice, but it's something someone, a good friend of mine said to me when I was a young teacher and trying to figure out when to write she very kindly said to me something like, Amanda, do you ever just not go running one day? And I was like, no. And she said, <laughs> but why would you not ever skip a run? But when you get busy, you skip writing. And I was sort of thinking like, 
well, I don't know. And, (laughs) you know, which is not to say that she said that and then I never skipped a writing session again, but it did make me think about like the ways that I could show up for myself and for me running, I don't have any professional aspirations. I'm not going to win any money running. It's just something I do for me. So even if I had, I tried to, at that moment, say to myself, even if I know I will never publish a book, I will never make 10 cents from writing something. It's something I love to do. and something that I always feel better when I've done just like with running. So let's Amanda, like try to give yourself, show up for yourself as a writer. And then sort of the second part of that is in the same way that I think everybody knows the exercise advice, like do what's fun and do what's manageable. Like if you're someone who likes to rock climb, do that. If you're someone who likes to go on a 10 minute walk at lunchtime, do that. Um, I think the same thing applies with writing. If you want to journal and that's a way for you to be writing, I, I don't like journaling at all. People always think that I'm constantly writing in a journal. It's not like part of my writing life. Um, and I, I I write fiction only for me. I would have no plans of sending my fiction out into the world. But that to have a practice as a writer doesn't have to be tied to publication or even to professional ambitions. You know, like I think teachers spend a lot of time writing in ways that don't feel like big and grand, you know, writing assignment sheets and writing comments and writing syllabi. Um, and so if that kind of, if like published writing doesn't feel like an important part of your writing life because you're already publishing all of those other types of writing all week long, then if writing is writing experimental poems or, you know, taking a flash fiction class or something like that, that a writing practice doesn't have to be goal or professional oriented in the same way that, um, you know, I think all of us would give someone else grace to say, how wonderful that you have gotten into kayaking and not ask them, <laughs> when are you going to enter the kayak Olympic trials? You know, it doesn't have to be about the book deal or the, you know, New Yorker byline or something like that. That's lovely. Uh, Amanda, thank you so much. It's been a great hour. And I look, as you know, I've kept a list of other things I want to talk to you about. I can't wait to talk more. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.